0: Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I am back. I am Jeremy Fisk, the only one you really need to care about. And, but there's also Chapin Hemingway here and Lee Carlo. And today we're going to be reviewing David Fincher's Mank. That's right. The David Fincher has a new movie. It's out on Netflix and it is called Mank. Mank? It's awesome words. Of, of course it
1: is. I think it's time we talk. What is it? The writer says,
2: tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please call me Mank. 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 Mank? This is
0: Herman Mankowitz, but where to call him Mank? Mankowitz?
2: God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale. Just call me Ahab. Do come in. but this right
0: Today's podcast do. is uh, being brought to you by Pizza Planet. Do you like pizza? Do you like spaceships? Pizza Planet is the place to go. Uh, you got a family; they the kids love it. All their restaurants are space themed. It's just a, it's it's. It's fun to go there it's fun to bring the kids and enjoy some space pizza and they've all closed because of covid well it's takeout only okay <laughs> right now currently but you know there's a vaccine curbside pickup. hopefully uh 2021 will be a better year and we can all celebrate at pizza planet all right guys so mank David Fincher hasn't released a movie in six years and we've recently done a Fincher retrospective. He's one of our favorite directors. Um, So when he releases a movie, it's obviously something we're really looking forward to *Mank* is a little bit outside the box for Fincher, um, and my question no knowing that knowing Fincher like we do, and what his themes are and the way his style is and how he shoots movies, and the the sort of style of acting that um, he portrays in his films, my question to you guys is, what do you think was his draw? to this story i mean obviously other than the fact that his father wrote the screenplay but what do you think knowing fincher as you do as a director what do you think drew him to this um this film which is different for him in the way that even it looks how the actors perform um yeah lee yeah well
1: on the surface this is definitely a very different movie for Fincher. It's I think by far his most esoteric movie. It's obviously I think dealing with kind of a I mean certainly a less, you know, poppy plot, I guess. Uh and is a little bit more intimate than a lot of his movies are. But the closer I paid attention to this movie, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it's not really all that different from a lot of his movies in terms of themes. I think the closest parallel you can draw is to The Social Network, uh, which may seem strange, but it deals... uh, Really, what I was thinking is any hopes that we had for a Social Network sequel directed by David Fincher went away with this movie, because this is essentially it. It's really about the power that the media holds and the ways that that can uh, be manipulated and how that can sway uh, politics and decisions and all sorts of things and that's clearly a theme that interests him and Mm -hmm. the kind of cynical side of that you know the the edge to that the dark underbelly of that is certainly
0: material that fincher loves so Okay. You know, that right there is what I think it is. So thematically, yes, you're right. And let's just explain this movie, if you haven't seen it, a little bit to the audience. Um, It's about the original screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz of um, uh, Citizen Kane, which we reviewed not too long ago, maybe a month ago on this podcast. And it's his sort of struggle of getting that screenplay written – and surrounding that a big a big part of that is the manipulation of the media towards the general populace which is obviously a theme that um is current and important um but other than thematically like as as a filmmaker and in his style do you think he just is with this film is just playing towards the time period, the 1930s and those type of movies. And he just wanted to sort of in a weird way, have fun with it.
2: Yeah. I think his style is still there. It's just got this sheen of the photography and the, um, you know, like the, what I found particularly difficult was the sound. They, uh, they make the dialogue, sound like it was recorded in 1940 or 1930, and I think they did that partially from that article I sent you by, like, playing playing this, the the track, you know, the edited soundtrack of the movie in a theater and, like, recording it with older mics or something. Um, and so I found that hard, I found it hard to hear, but, yeah, I mean, basically he, I, I just feel like that's a great example of what he does here, which is sort of run everything he does through this filter of 1930 and, and take all his tools, his digital cameras, his stable, his, you know, post stabilization, like all this stuff that is very modern and very Fincher-like and kind of put this filter of the forties over it. And I think it kind of, I think it works nicely. Like it sounds very kitschy and distracting and, um, I always think about that. I don't know if I ever showed you this, but like Fincher talking about anamorphic lenses, which are, you know, obviously very common. Uh, plenty of filmmakers swear by them. Paul Thomas Anderson being one of them. And, and Tom uh, Fincher is just like, thinks it's idiotic to put a uh, uh, anamorphic element in front of a lens because it just distorts it and changes. It. And so I was thinking about that when, you know, I guess it's okay to do in post here, but um you know he's someone who has this very precise vision and i think it's there it's just got this it's as if you're like looking through a little bit of a cloudy glass you know and i think that's what for the 40s part of it is here
1: well and i think that that, that meta quality of this movie would would come across as superficial if it wasn't so pervasive th- through every aspect because it's not just it's not just the sound it's not just the black and white, and the cigarette burns, and the harsh lighting, deep focus, fade to blacks. Like Aesthetically, there's a lot of things that he does to kind of capture that 1940s-era movie, but there's so much in the screenplay, too, that I think is really self-aware and meta that is super clever, that builds on top of that. So this movie as a whole really doubles down on that idea that it's make, that it's it's a 1930s or 1940s movie. I mean, it, he did everything he could to make it that without sacrificing enough modernism to keep it relevant and somewhat appealing did the, to a modern did audience. The juxtap-
0: did the juxtaposition of the two things, that modern look, and you can certainly obviously tell it's digital and it's sort of this clean black and white, um, and you could tell it's sort of modern people trying to uh, act as though they were from the 1930s. Did did the juxtaposition of those two things ever bother you guys, or you you sort of just went with it?
2: Not at all. I I, no, I, no. I, I liked it, and I thought there was, <clears throat> you know, like Fincher. I think is very con- a very controlled filmmaker in many ways. And Lee and I talked a little bit about this on our Hillbilly Elegy mm-hmm. podcast last week, where when I First started make you know making movies out of school. I had all these strict rules about what I wanted to do, and I like I, oh, I'm I'm better than this, or I've got this edge, and forget it, blah blah blah. And uh, I think this movie is Fincher like really loosening up. Like you know the cigarette burns thing is like a was obviously part of Fight Club, and it's almost Tarantino of him to throw throw those in mm-hmm. there. You know it's a little self referential. I, I don't think that's something. He does a lot, and he 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 he's nowhere near as sort of annoying about it as 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 uh, Tarantino is. Um, Jeremy, if I can, I, I would like to go back to your initial question though about mm-hmm. Fincher. I mean, in, in my mind, I think this is a, this movie is about a guy, a filmmaker in 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 Herman Mankiewicz, who is a rebel, and I think that's what Fincher is. You know, a lot of the the pieces written about this movie, go back to alien three and how he was this young filmmaker who was like totally fucked over by the system and now had this chip on his shoulder. That's like lasted for 30 years.
0: (laughs) Um, It is ridiculous. Like he's, and I get over it, mate.
2: You have to, I feel the same way. I
0: feel the same way about Tom Brady still having a chip on his shoulder about being drafted in the sixth round. Like you've accomplished everything after that. Why is that still bothering you? But, and it's the same way with Fincher
2: and Alien. Th- that's what I love about about Mank and what I think the movie is in, at the end of the day about. And I'm sorry to jump on this a little bit, but to me it's it's about these this guy who you know, he's an artist, but in a way that's like very I mean, he's a filmmaker, right? Like but 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 he's he's somebody who has a chip on his shoulder, can't help himself and uses his skills yeah. yeah to push back and to like really kind of he can't help himself from like you know getting revenge on these people or at least sort of pointing out their flaws um, which, is, which is interesting
0: because he doesn't have an adversarial relationship to these people that he's sort of quote unquote taking down he's, he's in their circle he, he, he dines with them he drinks with them There's, they don't necessarily but, do anything wrong to him
1: it's another example of this movies meta layers because neither does Fincher. Fincher is a studio filmmaker. He is a, he is he is part of the system whether he wants to be or not.
2: <laughs> he made this for and, Netflix. It's like they're one of the biggest right. companies in the and world. And
1: there's there's a, there's a line in this movie. I mean again, there's a line in this movie that says like we we're in this we're having this conversation to figure out how we're going to get people to go to the movies. Or to go to the theater specifically, as we sit and watch this movie on Netflix, yeah, and are having the same conversations elsewhere. Like top to bottom, this movie is aware of itself and aware of its relevance, but also tells a story about something it, that happened
2: a hundred years ago.
0: What is it rebelling against ultimately, and what is he rebelling against ultimately? Fincher
2: does he know? Well, he's he's rebelling against, I would imagine, every film studio that said. You want to make a movie in black and white about the making of Citizen Kane that may or may not be true? Uh, no, thank you. And honestly, they were probably right. Like, this movie would not have done well in the theater. Let's be honest. It's not well, doing particularly uh, well on Netflix. Is he,
0: <laughs> is he rebelling against really also the the old system of Hollywood that he sort of took down himself? Like, he's one of the our first digital filmmakers that really rose it to an art like you look at zodiac we always point to that movie as as sort of the start of digital filmmaking being beautiful and and the photography being beautiful is is that part of maybe something he's alluding to here i don't think that as much i think
1: he i think what he's doing with what we see in old hollywood is exposing it for what it really was. In the same way he, you know, in, in, in the same way you'd want to, you know, it, we did it on the Kane podcast, the same way you co- you compare uh, William Randolph Hearst to Charles Foster Kane to Donald Trump. Like, you're exposing, you know, these people that are in power and what they do and who they really are. So he's doing that with one aspect of the movie. The look back on old Hollywood, he's exposing... What that was really about, how these studio executives just basically used people for their own financial gain and, uh, and did whatever was necessary to get the people they wanted into power, whether it was political office or whatever. And I think he's kind of exposing what that really was, because we look back at old Hollywood and this movie opens with that shot of the back lots that we've seen before. And we all sort of, even if you know we weren't ever there for that, but we have this kind of nostalgia for that, right? What what, what Hollywood lots looked like. All three of us, when we worked in Los Angeles for a short time, we drove onto these lots and there was something about them that was kind of like warm and inviting and like reminded you of the glory days of, of Hollywood filmmaking. And The opening shots of this movie do the same thing with all the extras in the background and this, you know, the strong man carrying his big, you know, weights and clowns and elephants and all this stuff that, like, was movie making in the 1930s. And that's juxtaposed with the things that Louis B. Mayer is saying and the conversations that are happening behind closed doors about what's really going on and how everything's really going. And I think that is a separate storyline to what we're talking about with like kind of the meta quality of this film of Fincher being a filmmaker and Mankowitz being a filmmaker. I think those things tie together nicely, but it's not the same. It's not the same right. battle.
2: But I, I think that Fincher is a rebel, but he's a rebel who works in the system like Mankowitz. Right. Yeah. And I think that's true. And, you know they. I I love the little dialogues they have. You know, like it's the depression when he gets all these guys to move out to Hollywood to work for him, and and they're all they're all. I mean, you know, this sort of semi-Marxist guy in Herman Mankiewicz says all the two hundred fifty dollar a week writers are making twenty five hundred. You know, in in essence implying that everybody is sort of overpaid in Hollywood and you can make all this money. And that's what he said on the card to his brother is that, you know, we can make millions. They're all fools or something like that. Um, And, you know, I I don't think that that, I don't think that's how Fincher thinks of Hollywood now, but you know, he's someone who's always worked for a studio. He's never made an independent movie and he likes, probably likes to spend money and probably likes to make a lot of money. I mean, you know like his movies aren't cheap this is like, like i like i mentioned to you guys this is the most inexpensive movie he's ever made um and but, but it was it's still
1: 60 million dollars or something right
2: no 30 20 to 30 really i heard today it was 60 but anyway well oh, maybe but um yeah and i so i find that fascinating but i also think like he,
0: he has a weird relationship with media too sure. I, I, he's he's definitely showing the danger of the power of media while also sort of being part of that danger in a weird way and it's not just what it was like in the 1930s it's what it is today it's and it takes a different form it's going directly to your tv or it's on your phone or it's on facebook but that, i think that's interesting he, he that you say facebook me. Um, yeah, he exposes the power of media
2: And what you said, Lee, about them doing it I would love Fincher and um, Aaron Sorkin to do uh, a Facebook sequel I mean, that's only because Jack Fincher is unavailable to write it Because I think he's a better writer than um, than, than Aaron Sorkin But, uh, you know that
0: Wait, You think he's a better writer? I think
2: this is a better script than anything we've seen from Fincher I, I was gonna say this network?
1: is. I was gonna say this is the best screenplay I've seen since The Social Network.
2: So wow. yeah, it's it's up there. So what I w- what I would say is that I, I just um, I just think that I just think that uh, you know they they took a lot of liberties with that story and um. You know, sort of famously in a way that like they may not be able to take if they made a sequel, um. So I th- I just think that's really interesting. Like I I agree that like he's 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 you know bucking the system et cetera. but like he you know they're they're in some ways they're doing it under false pretenses. And like this movie, a lot of people repudiate what happened in this movie. You know, like the this this screenplay is based on, I'm sure you guys know this, but that um Raising Cain article that um Pauline Kale wrote about the the making of this, you know, where she essentially defended uh Mankiewicz for being the real genius behind Citizen Kane. It was super controversial. And for the time. And um, a lot of people don't think it's true.
0: Jeremy. Did, yeah. Go ahead.
1: No, go. go. No, I was going to ask.
0: Do, do you know if that end scene where he, he accepts the Oscar. Did that really happen? Is there a video of that where he says basically he wrote it. And no thanks to Orson Welles. I have no idea
1: if that's authentic or not. Um
0: Jeremy, did you like this movie? I did. I did like it. I think I need it's like it's I know it's one of those movies, it's one of those Fincher movies that like Zodiac. I I I'm going to need to see again. It's it's one of those movies where I I finished watching it and I just kind of let it sit with me and I didn't know exactly how it was settling, but there's that like allure lure to watch it again. And I know it, it it's going to grow on me over time, especially you guys say that the screenplay is the best since social network. Like I was almost not even paying attention to that as much as the, uh, the character of Mankiewicz and um, the whole stylized nature of this film.
1: So I felt very similarly to that. Chapin, I, I'm going to guess that maybe you did too. And then I watched it again. And I'd encourage you, Jeremy, to watch it again as soon as possible. Yeah. Like, it's, it's not, it's, it's sort of, I sort of hate being like, you have to watch this movie twice. We've had this conversation before.
2: It's really annoying but
1: to say that. It but. is annoying, but it's also the type of movie that, oh, this, watching this movie, going into it, not knowing anything, is sort of a cautionary tale for doing that. Like, this movie is better when you know what it's about you spend so much time watching this being like, how does this, is this the making of Citizen Kane? Is this about a guy sick in bed? Is this about William Randolph Hearst? Is this about old Hollywood? You spend all this time trying to figure that out that you lose a little bit of what this movie is really about. And the second time around, my God, like the the layers in this movie, and I've talked about like the meta quality of some of those layers and, you know, things like, you know, referencing, uh, there's a line in this movie when they're all kind of talking about Adolf Hitler. And one of them says he won't be around too long. The German people are good, considerate people. And look, we know what happened there. And we were having the exact same conversations in 2015 about Donald Trump, you know, and, and look at where we ended up. And so there's things like that. But then there's there's Fincher shooting... A walk and talk, which is a very modern thing, from a low angle, just like Orson Welles did in Citizen Kane. Like, it's just combining these two things. So, like, from a technical standpoint, from a screenplay standpoint, and then the way the story kind of merges all of its aspects together nicely is
0: utterly brilliant. Yeah, so I'd like to ask you guys, like, your second time around, so by the time I ended watching this the first time, like... The emotional aspect of that character, Mink, was at the forefront for me. Like, I thought because of the performance mm-hmm. by Gary Oldman and uh, just the way that the story ended up, that that, that, that was what really resonated with me. But I, when you guys watched it the second time around, what was that still the big? Influence on on you, or is it really about these this layering and all this other stuff that goes into it that you kind of waste a lot of brain power trying to figure out the first time?
1: What do you think, Jabin? I mean, I I, don't, I say all that stuff, taking nothing away from Gary Oldman's performance, which I think is also a historically good performance and just completely convincing. Um, so I think it's all part of the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, I think the and second time around, does it like second, meld nicely?
2: Yeah, yes. I think the, the second time around, you get a you get a better sense of who everybody is. Like, um, you know, he's got that like like the is his name Shelley the guy who,
1: yes, the, he, the camera operator that that, that directed the, the right. uh, so propaganda he, commercial. Yeah, like
2: he's he's in the initial writers' room with them. He's like one of the six guys that they first introduce, and then he's at the um he's at the Hearst castle when they're filming the, he's like the second cameraman. And so like you, you, you see all the connections between them. And I think like, because it's in black and white and kind of hard to hear, um, you don't quite like the first time around, you don't quite notice all that stuff. Like people are, are, it's everything is just sort of gray. So you're not, you don't quite identify who's who. And so the, the older gentleman from the writer's room, you know, pops out a little bit the second time, but also just like, I actually watched the second time a lot with subtitles so that I could sort of understand what everybody was saying. Um, and that was also very helpful. And like, I I think that scene you just described where everybody's having a, (laughs) a casual conversation about geopolitical issues in that giant room at Hearst castle. Like, I mean, an extraordinary scene and one that is much easier to appreciate after you've, um, you know, had a second to, to, uh, you know, listen to see Well, you kind of know
1: how you got there, too. Like, it's a, I remember the first time watching the movie, that scene being like, oh, that was a good scene. And then I was kind of going through this movie. I was like, God, the, you know, this movie does have a lot of good scenes. But if I walk away from this movie being like, oh, that scene was good and that scene was good, am I going to be satisfied? Does that make this a good movie? Because typically the answer is no. Like, you say, okay, it was okay on a scene-by-scene basis, but maybe it wasn't equal to the sum of its parts. But on that second viewing, you realize how much it is equal to the sum of its parts that – knowing who all those characters are, knowing why Mank is there, just a very simple line of dialogue that could very easily be missed when we first meet William Randolph Hearst. He says, sit Mank next to so-and-so.
2: Next and to me, next to me. Yeah,
1: right, ne- next to me. That's how we learn that how he gets there and be- develops a relationship, which I don't know that I missed that line, but it's just little things like that throughout the screenplay that if you do miss, you, you start to fall behind a little bit. Right. And this movie is, especially at the beginning, is fast. Like, you're introduced to a lot of people really quickly. It's tough to keep up.
2: And I, I'm with you, Jeremy. Like, the first the first time I watched this, and I think even the second time, the stuff I enjoyed the most was the stuff that was in, you know, out in the valley or whatever and in, in the, um, you know, the, sort of the present day when he's writing the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Like, I love that stuff. And he's just in bed and everything's kind of coming together for him and he's writing the script and... Um, that to me was, I think, uh, smartly the emotional core of the movie. Um, but then I think like you just start, you start to understand like all the political stuff, you know, that he's a little bit of a socialist and, you know, he, he's sort of, um, has sympathy or, or, or is, 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 um, you know, connected with the working man a little bit. And so he's, when, when when he notices these his bosses essentially, but these people he's you know can can enter rooms and meetings with without an appointment are voting and 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 voting for a Republican, but also you know working actively to crush this socialist running for for governor of California, you know, and, and using means that. Are, are are a little questionable morally. You you, you start to understand what his his anger, and you start to and and one thing that I missed that is crucial is that when he is in that scene talking to Shelley about about the the reels that he made that were apparently so influential is that Hearst paid for them. I didn't that that kind of m- missed me the first time. Um. Right, and so there's this bizarre relationship that William Randolph Hearst is like paying for things that MGM is making, and um, it's very complicated. And so it's nice to you know be able to watch it again. I hope you get a chance to do it.
0: Uh, I'm sure I will, especially before our uh, Fixie Awards. Uh, I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that scene, um, about the director who got his big shot and was able to direct. These quote-unquote news reels, um, and he was so guilt-stricken by the manipulation that he caused, um, you know, that uh, well, he had a, he had a rough night. Let's just say that. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so clearly, that's something that's still going on now, and it's sort of, you know, with the internet and in our modern world, it's it's. a a thousand fold from back then. Um, Did you find that, did you find, I found it interesting, let's say it this way, I found it interesting that it was a problem back then. I didn't, I honestly didn't realize that.
2: What was the problem?
0: That sort of fake media Hmm. was a real thing back then and that the manipulation of the news was a real thing back then. And it's scary to think how long that's been going on.
1: Yeah, I didn't know if it made me feel better or worse. worse, Like I, I I think the big difference is what you said—that it's just it's a thousandfold now. Like it's, you know, that newsreel footage goes out that he creates, but other than that, like all this,
0: all this talk and
1: stuff is is relatively contained amongst these people, and like. Now it's just everything is just so global and right. instantaneous.
0: And, and like the one person that does a little bit here now and throws something on the internet is not going to feel a, a guilty conscience as that character basically, show, you know, his newsreel was the newsreel that everybody saw. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, it's easier for him to feel guilty about it. Whereas now it, the guilt is spread out amongst thousands of people and, uh,
2: yeah. You know. Also, I mean, I'm sure. You know, you could argue Fox News is <clears throat> is an example against this, but you know, having companies as large as MGM committing this kind of malfeasance is I, I don't think is common. But I, maybe I sound naive saying that. I, I don't know. You're probably
0: but... right. You're probably right. It wasn't a common thing. Like
2: they were. They were. He was. um What's the guy's name? Th- you know, Thalberg was was pressuring Mank to... to,
1: Yeah, to donate. To,
2: to the... donate to the campaign, which is, like, totally inappropriate. That would never happen. You would never be asked by your boss to give to a charitable campaign, that seems, at the very least.
1: But all this stuff is what I was talking about. That it, And I liked this for the s- same reasons I liked it in Citizen Kane. Like, it's so surprisingly relevant and fincher doubles down on that and he takes every aspect of this movie and simultaneously makes it modern and relevant and also a throwback to 1930s and 40s cinema and reality and forget the authenticity of this storyline and anything that happened I, I could i don't care i don't care if this is a hundred percent fictional it doesn't matter because i think it's a it's a movie and art can be told however it wants to be told so his Fincher's work with this movie, in combining those things, and both from a screenplay standpoint and from a filmmaking standpoint, I think is some of his best work. I will be the first to say this is not the movie that I wanted from Fincher coming back after uh, six years. I I was going to ask you guys the same thing. I was like, "Is this what you wanted?" And and I think the answer is like a pretty wide no from just about every Fincher fan out there. You know, we're used to. Much poppier movies from him, and even much ones darker. that have much darker, and even ones that, and this movie is dark, it's just not in the same way as like Fight Club or Seven or Zodiac. But it, you know, even his political side in movies like Social Network, I think it's all there in this movie, it's just not <clears throat> as broadly appealing and easily yeah. absorbed. And so I want. this was not what I was hoping for. But in the end, after two viewings, and that's annoying, two viewings, second one with the closed captioning on, like, God, that's fucking annoying. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. I loved it. Like, and I just can't stop thinking about it. And that the the thought provoking nature of it existed after my first viewing too, which it does, comp- but you don't know what- compelled me to watch it again even more.
0: It, you don't you all, you don't know what you're you're thinking though after the first one, like right now, I, I it provoked thoughts in me too, but I I don't en- entirely know what those are. I, like I I it provoked me to want to see it again. I also found myself like getting distracted, trying to connect the pieces to Kane. Like ah
2: yeah interesting. I didn't do that. I wanted
0: but... I wanted this screen like I I I wanted this screenplay to in some way mirror or connect to to cane a little bit more or or at least while I was watching it while I was trying to put it together I wanted Mank to have his rosebud you know I wanted to see yeah. the pieces of of Hurts being cane and and some of those are there like a little bit there's a little bit of Xanadu there in his palace there's obviously with Hurts wife um you know Kane's Kane's wife but I wanted more of that at in least American or David. at least I tried to put put the pieces together for more of that, that, that wasn't there.
2: Yeah. That's interesting. You say that I, because it, but at the end of the day, like, I mean, I did say that thing about Hearst sponsoring or paying for those, those, that real footage, the campaign, but it did seem like Mank was like angrier at the studio executives. Yeah. There wasn't as much
0: of Hearst. He's talked about a lot. I mean, there wasn't much hurts. There wasn't much. Uh, Orson Welles
2: the so the the organ grinder's monkey thing i think is a really nice metaphor for that ties it all together and like the fact that um Hurst says that to him as like a close a parting um a parting jab essentially uh, i don't know should we explain that yes so
1: it's a, par- it's a parable apparently it's a famous parable yeah it's a
2: parable about like how and, and, you know, you to fully understand it, you should just go back and listen to it. But basically that the, you know, the monkey thinks, the, the, you know, an organ grinder's monkey, of course, is like that old image of the, the the monkey who dances while a man like plays an organ, you know, for like a street performer. And, you know, the monkey thinks that what he's doing is provoking the, the guy to. His dancing is what's getting the guy to play Mm -hmm. the song, um, which is in fact, you know, so obviously not true. Like this, this is a monkey who is essentially the slave of this organ grinder who who is making money from this guy, from this, from this monkey dancing. And I think it's a way of her saying, you know, you think you're in charge or doing something, but really... You're just a pawn of all of us super rich people. Is that how you guys interpreted it?
0: Yes. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Without knowing exactly what that pawn does. Like, what, what he Like, that's what he's trying to say, but what is Mank doing for him? Like, what well, ultimately. Well, someone making, like
2: Mank would, well, would write. Uh, well, one, he is entertaining company at the functions, and he is someone that they like to keep around. But also someone like Mank would write Marion Davies' movies.
1: Yeah, they, it wasn't Mank specifically. I think what he was telling Mank in that situation is that we're like, this is, this is who you, like, you can show up at my house and point out all my flaws drunk if you want, but, like, this is who you've been. There's a million people like you. I control, I control them, I think is what he's saying. Even if, you're, he's a, even if Mank isn't going to do it anymore, he'll find somebody else.
2: So there's that parting shot, which I think is interesting that Mank kind of falls for that a little bit, you know, like if instead of making, you know, Louis B. Mare, although he evidently has a analogous person in um, in Citizen Kane, but like instead of making the movie about one of those guys, he he he's so viciously attacks Hearst in a very obvious and conspicuous way um i mean what's interesting in tying this back to our discussion of citizen kane i'm glad you brought that up jeremy is that you know i was and i don't know if i mentioned this on the podcast or not but i the one thing that i would say that kind of disappoints me about citizen kane is how much the when what's her name in what's the marion davies equivalent in citizen kane
1: um god i should remember this um something alexander
2: right so, the, her equivalent in 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 Citizen Kane, I, I never liked that. That was Susan
0: the, Alexander. Susan King. Alexander.
2: I was I never liked that she was like how much time they spend on her as as sort of an example of Kane's like arrogance and and his ultimate downfall. Like I wish there was something more substantive than that. He like just had a had a some ego connection to making her career stand out. I, you know that part of it. I to me just i i just wish was a little different as my little criticism of the best movie ever made but um uh so it's it's interesting that like he had this close relationship with Marion Davies and yet you know it doesn't that doesn't really make it into the movie but Hearst does so you're
1: saying the relationship with Marion Davies doesn't make it into this movie into Mank it doesn't make it into in Citizen, Citizen Kane. Kane. Yeah.
2: yeah. So like, which is, it's,
1: I
0: think what Chapin's saying is a more complicated relationship and puts her in a better light in this
2: in, in Mank than it right. does in Kane. And he says right. that. He says it's not her. It's what people think is she is.
1: Right. And I'd love to talk about her, uh, that character, in a minute. But I, just to Jeremy's point, I was reminded of the first time I saw The Master. You Remember, we went into mm-hmm. that movie, or we had the impression that, like, oh, this is going to be about Elron Ron Hubbard, this is going to be about Scientology, and it was right. not really like this, just not what the movie That's is. It, it's a perfect
0: example, it's of there, how but I there's, feel there's other I things.
1: Feel. Here, this movie is not really about the writing of Citizen Kane, it's not really about William Randolph Hearst. That's all a part of the story, but this is actually just about Mank, like that character in writing. His relationship with William Randolph Hearst and him writing Citizen Kane is part of that story, but it's not the making of Citizen Kane. And I think we were led to believe that maybe that's what this movie was, so it
2: Mm. throws you. I think it is really about, I think it is very much about Hearst. I was surprised that it's not more about um, Orson Welles.
0: Yeah, he's barely involved.
2: Like, you could, you could have, well, it's about make,
0: it's not about Hearst.
2: No, it's not about Hearst. Yeah, but but Hearst
1: is more involved even in scenes he's not in. Right. He's talked about a lot.
2: A lot. I, but Orson Welles, like, you could have even... I mean, I like that actor's portrayal of... Tom uh, Burke. Yeah, Tom Burke. But you could have even cut Orson Welles out of this, and I don't think you would have lost a whole lot.
0: I agree. I did like his I, I did like his delivery, though, and he sounded just like a But yeah. you're right. It wasn't about him. He could have stayed on the phone, and it would have been the same. It would have been fine, yeah. Yeah. And part of it is, like... And part of my disappointment, I think, is, like, I wanted... To be the, I wanted to be that clever guy that was able to say like, oh, there's that, there, there it is, there's that connection to Kane. Mm-hmm. Oh, I get that because I just watched Kane. You're like, you, there's part of you that like sort of longing for that, and once you realize that the, that's not the movie that they're making, you can kind of move on from that.
1: Well, he even there's even a joke in this movie about it where where Joe Mankiewicz, who is uh, Herman's brother and a famous filmmaker himself, uh. Says after reading the script, he's like, There's some specul. there was always uh, speculation, and and, uh, want- and no one knows why you didn't put this in the script that Rosebud was just Hearst's uh, uh, nickname for Marion Davi- yeah. uh, Davies' vagina. And he's just like, Well, I would have if I'd known. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but Marion Davies is played by uh, Amanda Seyfried. We could talk about her performance too, but. I thought this was an amazingly well-written character because like you see in Citizen Kane and like you see in movies like Singing in the Rain and a ton of movies, the silent era film actress is just a ditz, doesn't know anything, high-pitched voice, you know, blonde bimbo. And Marion Davies in this movie is not any of that. She's smart and she's charming. She's not wholly unflawed because she has that scene when she, uh, when um, Mank asks her to go back and and say that Hearst wants the newsreel footage pulled and she's like, I can't because I already made my exit for the for the cameras. so she's a little self-absorbed sure.
0: but I just think she's self-absorbed, but she's also self-aware.
1: Self-aware and just a well-rounded character and human being. And it was really refreshing to see that particular character written this way. And I liked it so much.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, and again, it's a surprise because you're comparing it to Cain and you sort of want to see where the Genesis of this came from. And you're like, it's not fair. Like I found myself feeling like it wasn't fair to her that he wrote the character the way he did in Cain. Yeah. Um, but that's a credit to, to that to the Marion Davies character. But and the movie's aware of that
1: too, because yeah. they keep he keeps denying that it's her. So it's right. Yeah, they're aware of the differences in the two characters. And I thought Amanda Seyfried was fantastic. And especially the second time around, there's a couple scenes where she just delivers a look that I think is is just so great. And it in particular there's a couple in that final scene at the dinner. The excitement she sees when Mang first shows up and then just kind of like the horror on her face when he starts you know unloading on everybody and you know she doesn't break down and cry she's kind of too strong for that she knows her place there so she doesn't say anything i don't know i thought especially that second time around i thought this was a really impressive performance too
0: what do you guys think of the black and white photography beautiful
2: yeah uh, i liked it um it's gonna turn a lot of people off um i don't i mean it's it's very digital black and white photography it is it, look, it, or it looks or clean on it lo- all edges it looks like roma a little bit i mean he's he's done some he's like there's definitely grain digital grain added to it um and there is effects done to make it look like sort of bad lenses of the 30s and 40s um yeah, no, I mean, I think there's beautiful moments. And what's interesting, you know, like back in the day, they, they would have things like, you know, filmed in Panavision or filmed in Technicolor 70 millimeter or filmed in, you know, Cyclorama mm-hmm. or whatever. And this they have filmed in high dynamic range, which I thought was cute and also true. I mean, you know, watching this in high dynamic range was, was gorgeous. Yeah. Um,
1: even the credit I sequence think, was self referential. I love like
2: yeah.
0: all of it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And and, and
0: I particularly like that uh, the look of the party not the party yep. but like the count the count uh yep. with the with the, the fireworks the, the count the, the sort of
2: the the sparklers and stuff was yeah, just gorgeous. Yeah. That
0: that looked amazing.
1: But I was struck by kind of this the harsh contrasts, you know the bl- blasts of light coming in through the windows almost all the time, the shadows you know, the, again, very meta. the the way that the characters walk in out of the shadows to Mank lying down in the bed are shots right out of Citizen Kane, and you know the all the all the lighting techniques that he uses are are direct references to that. But that was the stuff that appealed mostly to me. Like, I, again, I, I I'm not I don't I don't want to say I'm not bothered by it because I don't think you guys are bothered by it either. I, I just don't pick up necessarily right off the bat to be like, this looks digital or this looks like film. For me, it's more kind of the obvious things that you're looking at, not just that it's black and white, but the way that he's using that black and white to kind of emphasize certain aspects of the frame. And I thought all that stuff worked beautifully and stunning, and were stunning.
0: Uh, Same director of photography as Gone Girl. Is um, it? No, it isn't.
2: So, yeah. No, Minehunter.
0: Oh, yeah, Minehunter.
2: This he is was
1: a girl. This is Eric Messerschmidt's first feature as
0: a um, DP. Oh, okay. So he was in he, the camera department then. Wow, that's impressive. Good for yeah.
2: him. Yeah, I uh, I messaged him on Instagram. you know. that's my claim to fame. He did a, he
0: message back?
2: Yeah, he did. Made a little. Really? Brief, <laughs> a little. Yeah.
1: What did he say? Yeah, what you guys talk about? Have him come on the pod.
2: I just said, uh, just ask him a question.
0: How are you That's hiring? Really <laughs>
2: you seeing anybody? To do with, it had
0: nothing to do with film.
2: had nothing to do with film. just said, how are you doing?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you saw a picture of, like, a taco you've eaten in. How are you
1: holding up on the, to get during that. the pandemic?
2: I asked him about, like, what he does, how he uses, um, exposes for shadows or something. I feel like so I he said... I, I use Remember a lot in of shadows and light. This, this is an or, original quote. I use a lot of negative fill and use very little or no fill light. There you and go. I say, Thanks you for the response. Congratulations <laughs> on all your success. Cannot wait for bank.
1: No. no. Oh. I have a podcast. <laughs> Would you come
2: on at home?
0: Oh, that's hilarious. All right. Do you want to wrap this part up and uh, talk about HBO? And- well, we
2: have to. We have to. Where Where does this rank?
0: Yes. Do you guys remember your your the order of your list?
2: Yes. Yes. I mean, my the real question, and Lee, I wish you hadn't ruined it with your Gone Girl pick, but we had a. There, you know, there was a clear top four of Fincher's movies, and like we could very easily just say it's either in it or it's not. But you had to ruin it with the, your Gone Girl above Zodiac, well, Epic. which yeah. do, would and you I, care to would you care to rescind that now?
1: So I I watched Zodiac the other night because I I was having a a Fincher itch and Mac wasn't out yet. Um, you know, I still maintain some of the issues I have with Zodiac. It is it is such a good movie. Um. Look, I don't know. I, I I explained why I think Gone Girl ended up ahead of it on that podcast. Everybody should just go listen to that. It's a good-spirited argument that we all had. But I am willing to, for the sake of this, say that our top four are Fight Club 7, Social Network, and Zodiac in some order, in, a, in varying orders. I'm willing to right. do that for this argument so we can place Mank kind
0: of... Uh, uh collectively well it's certainly not going to beat those for me yet uh, i don't think ever even on a second viewing
2: uh it would knock fight club out for me oh no way but fight so, club but, was my number four of those Fight club i, is my I think one.
1: i think um depending on what my I, I don't i think it's four or five for me it's it's in the top five yeah um because behind it, that would put behind it basically Panic Room, the game, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, uh, yep. uh, Alien, yeah. and then what? Gone Girl or Zodiac. One of those, I don't know. But.
2: Oh, it's weird. I, I would. I did not expect that the Gary Oldman performance was. Would I didn't expect that those two would would gel so well together. One because they were once married to the same woman. <laughs>
0: wait is that true yes yes
2: Uh, i believe fincher's first wife is like gary oldman's second wife that is wild yeah neither (laughs) of them are married to her anymore they're just telling stories on set yeah oh my god um but but also just i don't and i'm not really sure why like like when i think of oldman i don't think of him as like a uh being you know the the kind of actor that 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 uh fincher appreciates but he's perfect like he's absolutely perfect in this
1: oh there's some um, classic is classic and fincher casting in this movie bill nye plays upton sinclair what bill nye the science guy plays oh, upton really? sinclair yeah. yeah that's brilliant yeah. i didn't this know classic that. You, david you fincher really casting him, huh? yeah it's just that one shot it's like one thing.
2: line but then like you know amanda seafree like who would have thought like she's probably going to get an oscar for this it seems like like who would have thought she would have been so good like lily collins is kind of like a Teen star, I guess, and um,
1: yeah. I, I mean, don't. this is not. This should not be a surprise to us anymore that that Fincher is capable of this. What's uh, what amazed me about Gary Oldman in this movie is uh, I read an article about you know a couple months ago about how Oldman had a hard time working with Fincher a little bit because Fincher basically wasn't letting him, letting him be the chameleon actor that he typically is. He's an actor that. Will, you know, get very made up. He won his Oscar for playing Winston Churchill in The Darkest Hour. Um, you know, he looks different in so many movies. You look at him as Sirius Black in Harry Potter. You look at him in, uh, as looking totally different in the Batman movies. And you go back to, like, Sid and Nancy, and he looks like this, you know, punk rocker. And so he changes his appearance consistently. And, and Fincher basically said, like, you don't need to look like Herman Mankiewicz. Some of these other people do. You know, Tom Burke needs to look like Orson Welles. Mm. So he wasn't letting Gary Oldman kind of have his process, but Gary Oldman clearly used his process and lost himself in this role and became some version of Herman Mankiewicz. Did and, he have
2: makeup on? Like, was he wearing kind of... I mean, he,
1: he might have had some around, like, I, I, you know, I don't know, what does Gary Oldman really look like now? Like, I he, don't saw, know. he was always kind of so thinny and gaunt in the Batman Yeah,
2: he, he's not as heavy and as... And in Harry Potter. It's Churchill, we know that.
1: Right, <laughs> right. So he's somewhere in the middle. Um, But Darkest Hour was several years ago, too. So anyway, I still felt like this was kind of a chameleon type of a performance. Like he completely lost himself in this character. You'd never watched this. At least I didn't, thinking that's Gary Oldman playing Herman Mankiewicz. I was like, this must be what Herman Mankiewicz looked and sounded like. I was totally convinced. Right. He doesn't need to be. It doesn't matter if it's real. Nobody really knows, watching this movie, knows what he was like. I
2: mean, it's interesting because I I watched the social network to get my Fincher... Itch, scratched. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, you know, the Winkle Vi don't look anything like uh you know, what's his name? Army Hammer, but uh so be it. Social network, that's a pretty good movie. (laughs) It is.
1: That's still Um, the best venture movie. Well, I don't think it I don't think it means that much for the industry because it's I mean it's it's kind of a mess. Strange decision. Uh very controversial here in Hollywood. I mean you've got some of the top filmmakers in the world, some of the biggest stars kind of waking up to find out, you know, they thought they were making these big movies for the big screen, and now those movies are you know, two billion dollars worth of movies are gonna be used
0: as a loss leader for a fledgling streaming service. It's a huge bait and switch. Let's do it. Let's talk now, about HBO and We should have put uh, a Warner we should have Brothers.
2: put a warning on our on our podcast that like we don't we don't we're not gonna like don't take everything we say on this podcast so seriously. Jesus. Yeah, I know. Because now they're just taking everything out of the theater. So did you guys... Okay, so we should just say, for those who don't know... uh, Sorry, did you want to lead this, Jeremy? I just kind of stole this for you. Um, So HBO Max will release 17 of Warner Media's new movies that are coming in 2021. They are going to come out... So every movie that comes out from Warner Media in 2021 will come out on both in both theaters and on HBO Max simultaneously. After a month they will leave uh, HBO Max and still be available in theaters and then on video and find the regular track. Um, did you guys read what Christopher Nolan said today about uh, I I did not, like not. I saw the article
1: but I, I didn't read get a chance to read to it. I will read it. To you.
2: Subtle Englishman Christopher Nolan said Some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed last night before thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find out they were working for the worst streaming service. Whoa. (laughs) Warner Brothers has an incredible machine for getting a filmmaker's work out everywhere, both in theaters and in the home, and they are dismantling it as we speak. They don't even understand what they're losing. Their decision makes no economic sense, and even the most casual Wall Street investor can see the difference between disruption and dysfunction. Lee
1: can I so i've I've read a lot of articles about this.'ve listened you could, to a bunch of you podcasts about this,
2: this. Nolan What's I, I've about?
1: listened to a bunch of podcasts about this and a, and the big controversy surrounding this move is, is this the death of movie theaters? Okay? a discussion we've been having throughout this pandemic. Okay, and i i just I just want to remind people that are that are suggesting that this move by Warner Brothers is going to kill movie theaters because now people are just going to watch all of their movies on a streaming service and not go to the movie theater in 2021. Maybe no one's fucking going to the movie theater in 2021 anyway. Yeah, this they isn't can't. The death. This is the, they can't the go to the, the movie theater. So there's no. <laughs> they can't go anyway. Yeah, the movie theater wasn't going to be able to fill
0: seats. <laughs> I don't understand what he's complaining about. Like nobody's going to go, like you're saying, like anyhow. So <laughs> why not just get, get out the films? Like, what is he, what is his, why does he say it makes no economic sense? Like you're not going to, your movie lost a ton of money because it went to theaters. Like what, what are they supposed to do? There's still a pandemic going on. Does he mention the pandemic in his a little angry British, tirade <laughs> warner brothers is
1: going to make more money by doing this than they would then than they would by trying to just put all their movies in theaters in 2021 with no one going to see them because i think this is a really smart move to put these on here for a month and then remove them you're going to get a lot of subscribers that way because movie a is going to come out in march People who want to see that will subscribe and then probably not unsubscribe, and now they have those $15 a month. And then in April, movie B comes out, and they're going to get even more $15 a month. This is a good, smart move by Warner Brothers to do this like this, because they weren't going to make the money in the theaters anyway. It's not like they're doing this in the midst of record-breaking theater attendance. It's the opposite. People aren't going anyway.
0: People are worried that it's a permanent thing. I think that's the problem. But nobody's seeming to address... like They're not addressing the pandemic in relation to this as much as the, maybe that this is killing the theaters because we're, it's just never going to go back, what, which is a discussion we can have. I don't know. Like I don't know the answer okay. to that. I,
1: okay, well, if it's up to Warner Brothers, then it will go back because don't you think... When you're allowed to go back into the theater, that they would rather get the $800 million for Wonder Woman in the theater than the $15 a month from HBO Max? I mean, come on. Financially, it's just a very black and white picture to me. When people can go to the theaters in full attendance with no concerns about getting sick and dying, then release your movie there. When they can't release it someplace else and make your money how you can, I'm sorry
0: to the the theaters. The other issue is like, are the theaters going to survive long enough to get through this? Okay, but But that's that's going to happen regardless. Problem? Yeah, it's not. (laughs) It is their problem if there's no movie theater to show their movies in.
1: Well, then Uh, they better start getting ahead and putting stuff on streaming services and figuring out a business model that
0: way.
2: I thought about this. I thought about this for a second. I think you're right. I like, I like the idea of focusing this on 2021. And I don't think they can afford to release a movie. I don't think they can afford to market a movie that doesn't come out. You know, like they've done this with like, how much have they lost already marketing Wonder Woman? You know, probably a hundred million dollars. That's what it takes to open one of these movies. I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them. And the difference is like you know we don't on a, like for I don't know did you guys ever see an ad for Mank like a like a video ad
1: no. not on t- just the trailer on the internet no nothing right, else right yeah
2: so Netflix I mean it, this this does its own marketing like you a streaming service markets itself essentially I mean they they spend money marketing and and you know they they could invest a hundred million dollars marketing HBO Max. Instead of a hundred million dollars per movie, you know, and right. so I think this makes a lot of sense financially. Um, whether it makes sense to continue like this, I don't know. I mean, and they're getting sued by a lot of people now. I guess so. So it seems weird I, that they didn't do their due diligence to figure out like whether they were allowed to do this or not. Um, there was but, the, the,
1: there was a very interesting discussion on the big picture, and it was very brief, but it was brought up and they only were talking about it briefly because I don't, they're not experts in this, but it was a good point that the back-end economics of something like this yes. are intriguing. How do actors who get points on box office get paid now if this is the future of how movies are released? Things like that, which is an interesting discussion for sure, but look, right. and, everything and- evolves. And like I, I just think, I, just, I, I am sorry that the theater's the theater chains and the independent theaters especially are going to get the short end of the stick on this, but it was happening anyway. So somebody at Warner brothers had the foresight to say, we can't go down with this sinking ship. Like
0: why should we yeah, lose money? Because they're losing movies. money. That's exactly. The other thing. These are movies that they're, they're just already sitting spent there. Hundreds of millions of dollars on. Like it's, they have to do something with them. So I just,
1: when I, I was, I read this and I was like, Good move, smart move. Really like the touch of putting him on there for a month and taking it off. And then when I read that, it seems like the consensus is that this is bad and the backlash is just crazy. I, I'm like, do you guys remember that you can't go to the movie anyway? How much money did Tenet make, Chris? Right. <laughs> like, it did terribly. And he's apparently pissed, too, that it's coming out. Like, it's being released on VOD already. Like... Does he not want people to see this movie? Ah, just I don't know. Like, I it's a, it was admirable at first that like he said he's like, I'm trying to support theaters. Fine. Like, I, I respect the kind of uh you know the the tradition that he's trying to keep. But there are, all, is something that is out of our theaters. control here. And like I mean it's not entirely out of our control, but we could have done better. But the fact is that People aren't going anyway. I don't know how many times I can. Uh, there's no other way to say it. The theaters weren't going to make the money anyway, so this is not <clears> killing <throat> the are, theaters.
2: Are theaters open anywhere in the country? They must be, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. You can. There's certain capacity. They are. I don't stuff. know what the most recent rollbacks are changing, but
2: yeah, it, it, it's a it's a shitty situation. I mean, I it, I think the question becomes like, does this will this be popular? you know like will it will and 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 honestly i i don't think like we've talked about extensively like this is a long game And you know HBO Max will probably get a big boost in subscribers. Like this is a big enough move. It's not like acquiring one movie, one Bond movie. It's a big enough move that it will attract a lot of movies or something like that. Yeah.
1: So it's more than one a month. I think they're gonna. I think this is gonna go really, really well for HBO Max.
2: Yeah. And so the the question becomes like, do they release everything this way? And I think like the, the what you what we have to say is like, people have been saying this, and I remember Brantley used to say it on the podcast, and I would get annoyed because it wasn't really true but i mean people go to movies like avengers endgame made almost 3 billion dollars last year that was only a year ago i mean pe- like th- we had more movies cross a billion dollars last year than have ever done before and it just it just keeps getting bigger like maybe attendance and ticket sales are generally a little flat but okay i mean there's still a ton of money to be made and i think i think it's it's it would be very difficult to just kill theaters like this, and I I remember them saying that on the on the big picture too, Lee. And I've like no, I I just don't agree with that at all. I
1: think that there's, there's too what much money this to is, be made. This what is what this
2: type of move I think is
1: going to teach distribution companies that have streaming services is that there is a type of movie that is more profitable on a streaming service. And there is a type of movie that is more profitable in the theaters. And they're going to start making movies and, and marketing movies and premiering movies accordingly. And I think we are going to see studios that release more movies on things like HBO max or sell, or even, I don't know what kind of uh, economics are involved in selling them to somebody like Hulu or something. But like, I just think, or, you know, Disney plus is the other big one that's owned by a studio. I, I just think you're going to see more movies that they look at and say, okay, our box office numbers on this will be fine, but chances are we could get, we could market this in a way to get, you know, whatever, 5,000 new subscribers worldwide if we put this on HBO Max or something. And I think they're going to learn from this and see, yeah, we're not going to put the Wonder Woman's of the future on HBO Max, but we are going to put the do either you guys have the Warner Brothers slate in front of you i knew all these movies you know uh, do i know dune was on dune part dune of is it, another yeah. one that will be that's more of a yeah. theater release but um, there's some smaller ones that they have too that are just maybe are more appropriate for a streaming launch and i think that that will work i just well, I just completely here, dismiss Let's... the idea that this that. People aren't going to go to the movies now because Warner Brothers is putting their movie on a streaming service. I know a lot of people have forgotten that there's a pandemic, but not that much.
0: Yeah, so let's play this. Let's play worst case scenario out, okay? So say like AMC and Regal don't make it through the pandemic. Say they actually close. Like they they go out of business. So you get 70% of, of movie theaters are gone come you know, the end of 2021. We don't have them anymore. That doesn't mean that those physical structures of theaters are gone. The, the buildings are still going to be there. They're not just going to tear them all down. Yeah. So, say 2021 ends, we we have a vaccine, people start feeling okay to go back out, and you can safely go to fill up movie theaters again. Somebody, probably fucking Amazon, is going to buy all those buildings back up that and change rumor, them back. Yeah. Changing so it would back AMC. into movie theaters, and you're going to be able to go that. to the
1: theater again. It would have to be something somebody like Amazon or Apple or somebody that does it, because I was thinking about that exact thing. I was just like, if these companies close, somebody will just kind of reopen the next one. But
2: well, the caveat to right, the
1: caveat to that was that like and we were joking about this because the movie theater in Salem before the pandemic was up for sale for a pretty reasonable price and me and Jeremy wanted to buy it and have that be our career. Good thing we didn't, Jeremy. But buying a, mov- buying a movie theater was a risky proposition pre-pandemic. So is there going to be somebody that's like, let's make this our next venture?
0: A big enough company is. Like, and that's why I mean, I think like a Amazon or
1: something, it would have to be them and... Be a good move for Amazon. Yeah,
0: I mean, I would love it if like it just became like a, a it, bunch of small independent theaters, and like uh, you and me yeah, bought that. Yeah, would be great. That, you know, like I for example, that Salem theater's sitting there, empty, ready to be.
2: I think used. the Amazon buying it is is a worst case is is one of a the worst case scenarios to to answer your question. I'm not but really do sure why. Say that but... that
0: because? Because then they're only going to play like Amazon original movies. Well, the thing is, or, is,
2: I think that would be a violation of the Antitrust Act. The I the, think so. I uh, like. I mean, yeah, I'm
1: sure there's something. In that I mean, they can't but they do,
0: literally but... did that with bookstores. They literally closed all the Barnes and Nobles and the Borders books, and then when they w- were finally yeah, all but gone, they, didn't they decided. Buy them. Well, they not, didn't necessarily buy those spaces, but then they opened up their own bookstores and sold their stuff.
2: Um, it's a good question. I I don't know. I mean, there's going to be plenty of, I mean, movie theaters are just the ones we discuss now, but there'll be plenty of businesses that have been shuttered for this entire period. And then it's not up to us to figure out how to save them. But, um,
0: but my point is like, if, if, Warner Brothers or a big production company wants to then, once we can go back to movie theaters, release movies in theaters, I think there's going to be somebody there to say, yes, you can will yeah, it be a my theater. Yeah, I think so too.
1: Um, can I – are we done with that conversation or do you guys have more?
0: I just had one part, parting thought before we signed off. Uh, well, now you have to tell us the parting thought. Well, it was—it has to do
1: with with Netflix's annual Oscar play. That I'm starting to wonder if maybe they need a new voice in the room. Now I loved Mank, <laughs> really enjoyed The Irishman, loved Roma, mm. but those are their last three years, kind of big play for an Oscar Best Picture. They're like, oh, okay, let's go get a. Uh, you know, the, these Mexican filmmakers have been doing really well. They've been winning a lot of Oscars. So let's get Alfonso Cuaron, give him whatever he wants. He goes and makes his black and white Spanish language foreign film. Doesn't make, doesn't win best picture. They're like, oh, ah, yeah, who, who do we yeah, get? It won, it won it best it. I know, but just listen to my point. They want to win best no. picture. Okay. They, so they say, okay, let's try Let's, let's, let's stick with America. Who's our best. American filmmaker. Oh, Marty Scorsese, get him. Get, give him whatever he wants. He can make his whatever movie he wants. Goes and makes his three and a half hour passion project. Okay. Doesn't quite cut it. Doesn't make Win Best Picture. They're like, shit, what are we doing wrong? Let's let's go back to the black and white thing. Get David Fincher. Let's try David Fincher, black and white movie about the making of Citizen Kane. And they get this. Also a movie that's not really all that broadly appealing. Like <laughs> they're making these great movies. I don't think but
0: they care not, about winning the best picture. I think they just. I want think to they really nominated. do. I think they
2: desperately want to win best picture.
0: Really, I yes. and think I think they're, they're making to... the wrong
2: There's, movies they spent to do like, it. No, uh, uh, like so think... much money trying to win.
1: Now they they did make a movie about Hollywood here, so <clears> that, you know.
0: That might, well, that it's might help also them out. the year it's also the year of the pandemic and not much has come out, so they I don't have I, honestly, I, 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 I
2: think they've done pretty well. I, I mean,
1: mean look, I love these three movies I just mentioned.
2: They, I just, they, made, they, made, they have been a player a significant player in, in the best picture category for the last at least two years, right? Two or three years? What was two thousand seventeen?
1: Yes, but why haven't they won? I mean, because
2: because it, it's it's Roma hard to was, win. It's Roma hard won win. the
1: fixie. Irishman had I mean, a wait, nomination like, for best picture, and Mank, I'm telling you right now, is going to have a best picture nomination
0: at yeah, the very so least. I think that means they're doing good. You can't you I, can't buy a best picture.
1: No, you can't. But I just I just think it's interesting the types of movies they've chosen to make.
2: I mean they for were their nowhere. Oscar plays, like, they were nowhere. They had no movies in 2017 that made it. And I think when they started cuz I don't think they were trying. And now they tried and they they nailed it. They haven't won one yet, but they will. It's inevitable.
1: It's so funny to me that like the way we talk about Netflix now like Netflix will win a a best picture Oscar. Like we never we never say yeah, Warner Brothers will win Oscar.
2: I know. Sometimes- I think you give it's it up interesting all the time we talk about this but, but well acknowledge that it's interesting. It it is interesting but Netflix is a different entity. It's it's a different it's a like Nolan says it it's a uh what is, <laughs> it's but a it's disruptor.
1: Still... Okay, but it's still just a studio financing a movie.
2: Well, they're not a studio. They're a tech company. They're
1: a financier
0: of a movie. I mean, that's basically what Right, but before they started making their own stuff, I mean, they L- they were basically they they were a shipper of DVDs.
2: Yeah, and they Lee, sh- your your point is moot because Miramax was like the biggest Oscar player for the longest time, and that was a huge story. People talked about that all the time.
1: It's a good point. Yeah, it's a
2: good point. You talk about the the Rod Howard Oscar machine. That's one guy.
1: Yeah, but that's a uh, director. it's a, a filmmaker.
2: Oh, I wouldn't go that Those far. Those days, yeah, I feel like not a, a long filmmaker down. anymore. He's a shit maker, mate. I
1: don't know what you're talking about. Listen to the Hillbilly Elegy podcast. Uh, Okay,
0: Mank,
2: thumbs
1: up. Watch it twice, second time with the subtitles, and you'll be on your way.
0: Yeah, right now I have one thumb up, but after I see it the second time, two thumbs up. One for each viewing. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. No Uh, fears, no limits. What?
1: No substitutes. It's our, cat, it's our tagline.
0: <laughs> Visit us on Instagram. Uh, if you have anything to say, you just just email us feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast <laughs> Does
2: that email still work?
0: Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Big yeah. time. That's where oh, we yeah. We get spin. so many emails. It's too many. Uh, thanks.
1: I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee. Too many emails. I just send them all to spam. That'd be embarrassing if we were getting a ton. It was filtering to spam. People are like we email you every week.